Chapter Ten of Triplanetary. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Triplanetary, by E. E. Smith, Chapter Ten: The Boise Axe. But what of the supership? What happened after that inertialess, that terribly destructive takeoff? Dr. Frederick Raudabush sat at the control panel of Triplanetary's newly reconstructed spaceship, his hands grasping the gleaming ebonite handles of two double-throw switches. Facing the unknown though the physicist was, yet he grimmed whimsically at his friend. "'Something, whatever it is, is about to take place. The Boise is taking off, under full neutralization. Ready for anything to happen, Cleve?' "'All ready.' Shoot! Laconically, Cleveland also was constitutionally unable to voice his deeper sentiments in time of stress. Raudabush flipped the switches clear over in flashing arcs, and instantly over both men there came a sensation akin to a tremendously intensified vertigo, but a vertigo as far beyond the space-sickness of weightlessness as that horrible sensation is beyond mere terrestrial dizziness. The pilot tried to reverse the switches he had just thrown, but his leaden hands utterly refused to obey the dictates of his reeling mind. His brain was a writhing convulsive mass of torment indescribable, expanding, exploding, swelling out with an unendurable pressure against its confining skull. Fiery spirals, laced with streaming, darting lances of black and green, flamed inside his bursting eyeballs. The universe spun and whirled in mad gyrations about him as he reeled drunkenly to his feet, staggering and sprawling. He fell. He realized that he was falling, yet he could not fall. Thrashing wildly, grotesquely, in agony, he struggled madly and blindly across the room, directly toward the thick steel wall. The tip of one hair of his unruly thatch touched the wall, and the slim length of that single hair did not even bend as its slight strength brought to an instant halt the hundred and eighty-odd pounds of mass, mass now entirely without inertia, that was his body. But finally the sheer brain-power of the man began to triumph over his physical torture. By indomitable force of will he compelled his groping hands to seize a lifeline, almost meaningless to his dazed intelligence, and through that nightmare incarnate of hellish torture he fought his way back to the control board. Hooking one leg around a standard, he made a seemingly enormous effort and drove the two switches back into their original positions, then fell flat upon the floor, weakly but in a wave of relief and thankfulness, as his racked body felt again the wanted phenomena of weight and of inertia. White, trembling, frankly and openly sick, the two men stared at each other in half-amazed joy. "'It worked!' Cleveland smiled wanly as he recovered sufficiently to speak, then leaped to his feet. "'Snap it up, Fred! We must be falling fast. We'll be wrecked when we hit!' "'We're not falling anywhere.' Raudabush, foreboding in his eyes, walked over to the main observation plate and scanned the heavens. However, it's not as bad as I was afraid it might be. I can still recognize a few of the constellations, even though they are all pretty badly distorted. 
That means that we can't be more than a couple of light-years or so away from the solar system. Of course, since we had so little thrust on, practically all of our time and energy was spent in getting out of the atmosphere. But even at that, it's a good thing that space isn't an absolutely perfect vacuum, or we would have been clear out of the universe by this time. Huh? Impossible! Where are we, anyway? Then we must be making mi— Oh, I see! Cleveland exclaimed in disjointed sentences as he also stared into the plate. Right. We aren't travelling at all, now, Radabush replied. We are perfectly stationary relative to Tellus, since we made the hop without inertia. We must have attained one hundred percent neutralization, which we didn't quite expect, and therefore we must have stopped instantaneously when our inertia was restored. But it isn't where we are that is worrying me the most. We can fix our place in space accurately enough by a few observations. It's when. That's right, too. Say we're two light-years away. You think maybe we're two years older than we were ten minutes ago, then? That's possible, of course, maybe probable. There's been a lot of discussion on that theory. Now's a good time to prove or to disprove it. Let's snap back to Tellus and find out. We'll do that, after a little more experimenting. You see, I had no intention of giving us such a long push. I was going to throw the switches over and back, but you know what happened. However, there's one good thing about it. It's worth two years of anybody's life to settle that relativity-time thing definitely, one way or the other. I'll say it is. But say, we've got a lot of power on our ultra-wave. Enough to reach Tellus, I think. Let's locate the sun and get in touch with Sam's. Let's work on these controls a little first, so we'll have something to report. Out here's a fine place to try the ship out. Nothing in the way. All right with me, but I would like to find out whether I'm two years older than I think I am, or not. Then, for hours, they put the great super-ship through her paces, just as test pilots check up on every detail of performance of an airplane of new and radical design. They found that the horrible vertigo could be endured, perhaps in time even conquered as space-sickness could be conquered, by a strong will and a sound body, and that their new conveyance had possibilities of which even Routabush had never dreamed. Finally, their most pressing questions answered, they turned their most powerful ultra-beam communicator toward the yellowish star which they knew to be Old Soul. Sams! Sams! Cleveland spoke slowly and distinctly. Routabush and Cleveland reporting from the Space-Eating Wampus, now directly in line with Beta Ursae Minoris from the Sun. Distance, about 2.2 light-years. It will take six banks of tubes on your tightest beam, LSV-3, to reach us. Barring a touch of an unusually severe type of space-sickness, everything worked beautifully, even better than our calculations showed. There's something we want to know right away. Have we been gone four hours and some odd minutes, or better than two years? He shut off the power, turned around a bush, and went on. Nobody knows how fast this ultra-wave travels, but if it goes as fast as we did coming out, it's certainly moving. 
I'll give him about thirty minutes, then shoot in another call. But in less than two minutes the care-ravaged face of their chief appeared sharp and clear upon their plates, and his voice snapped curtly from the speaker. "'Thank God you're alive, and twice that the ship works!' he exclaimed. "'You've been gone four hours, eleven minutes, and forty-one seconds. But never mind about abstract theorizing. Get back here, to Pittsburgh, as fast as you can drive. That Nevian vessel, or another like her, is mopping up the city, and has destroyed half the fleet already.' "'We'll be back in nine minutes,' Rodebush snapped into the transmitter. Two to get from here to atmosphere, four from atmosphere down to the hill, and three to cool off. Notify the full four-shift crew, everybody we've picked out. Don't need anybody else. Ship, batteries, and armament are ready. Two minutes to atmosphere, and it took ten coming out? Think you can do it? Cleveland asked, as Rodebush flipped off the power and leaped to the control panel. We can do it in a few seconds if we had to. We use scarcely any power at all coming out, and I'm not using very much going back," the physicist explained rapidly, as he set the dials which would determine their flashing course. The master switches were thrown, and the pangs of inertialessness again assailed them, but weaker far this time than ever before, and upon their lookout plates they beheld a spectacle never before seen by eye of man. For the ultra-beam, with its heterodyned vision, is not distorted by any velocity yet attained, as are the ether-borne rays of light. Converted into light only at the plate, it showed their progress as truly as though they had been travelling at a pace to be expressed in the ordinary terms of miles per hour. The yellow star that was the sun detached itself from the firmament, and leaped toward them, swelling visibly, momentarily into a blinding monster of incandescence, and toward them also flung the earth, enlarging with such indescribable rapidity that Cleveland protested involuntarily, in spite of his knowledge of the peculiar mechanism of the vessel in which they were. "'Hold it, Fred, hold it! Way enough!' he exclaimed. "'I'm using only ten thousand dines, so she'll stop herself as soon as we touch atmosphere, long before she can even begin to heat," Rodebush explained. "'Looks bad, but we'll stop without a jar.' And they did. Weightless and without inertia, gravitation powerless against her neutralizing generators, the great supership came from her practically infinite velocity to an almost instantaneous halt in the outermost, most tenuous layer of the Earth's atmosphere. Her halt was but momentary. Inertia restored, and gravitation allowed again to affect her mass, she dropped at a sharp angle downward. More than dropped, she was forced downward by one full battery of projectors, projectors driven by iron-powered generators. Soon they were over the hill, whose violet screens went down at a word. Flaming a dazzling white from the friction of the atmosphere through which she had torn her way, the Boise slowed abruptly as she neared the ground plunging toward the surface of the small but deep artificial lake below the hill's steel apron. Into the cold waters the spaceship dove, and even before they could close over her, furious geysers of steam and boiling water erupted as the stubborn alloy gave up its heat to the cooling liquid. 
Endlessly the three necessary minutes dragged their slow way into time, and finally the water ceased boiling, and Raudabush tore the ship from the lake and hurled her into the gaping doorway of her lock. The massive doors of the airlocks opened, and while the full crew of picked men hurried aboard with their personal equipment, Sams talked earnestly to the two scientists in the control room. "'And about half the fleet is still in the air. They aren't attacking. They are just trying to keep her from doing much more damage until you can get there. How about your take-off? We can't launch you again. The tracks are gone. But you handled her easily through coming in?' That was all my fault, Radabush admitted. I should have neutralized inertia first, but I had no idea that the fields would extend beyond the hull, nor that they wouldn't act simultaneously. We'll bring her out on the projectors this time, though, the same as we brought her in. She handles like a bicycle. The projector blast tears things up a little, but nothing serious. Have you got that Pittsburgh beam for me yet? We're about ready to go. "'Here it is, Dr. Radabush, came the secretary's voice, and upon the screen there flashed into being the view of the events transpiring above that doomed city. "'The dock is empty and sealed against your blast.' And thereupon, "'Good-bye, and power to your tubes,' came Sam's ringing voice. As the words were being spoken, mighty blasts of power raved from the driving projectors, and the immense mass of the super-ship, shot out from the portals and upward into the stratosphere. Through the tenuous atmosphere the huge ship rushed with ever-mounting speed, and while the hope of Triplanetary drove eastward, Raudabush studied the ever-changing scene of battle upon his plate, and issued detailed instructions to the highly trained specialists manning every offensive and defensive weapon. But the Nevians did not wait to join battle until the newcomers arrived. Their detectors were sensitive operative over untold thousands of miles, and the ultra-screen of the hill had already been noted by the invaders as the earth's only possible source of trouble. Thus the departure of the Boise had not gone unnoticed, and the fact that, not even with his most penetrant rays could he see into her interior, had already given the Nevian commander some slight concern. Therefore, as soon as it was determined that the great ship was directed towards Pittsburgh, the fish-shaped cruiser of the void went into action. High in the stratosphere, speeding eastward, the immense mass of the Boise slowed abruptly, although no projector had slackened its effort. Cleveland, eyes upon interferometer grading and spectrophotometer charts, fingers flying over calculator keys, grinned as he turned toward Raudabush. "'Just as you thought, Skipper, an ultra-band pusher!' C four V sixty three L twenty nine. Shall I give him a little pull? Not yet. Let's feel him out a little before we force a close up. We've got plenty of mass. See what he does when I put full push on the projectors. As the full power of the terrestrial vessel was applied, the Nevian was forced backward, away from the threatened city, against the full drive of her every projector. Soon, however, the advance was again checked, and both scientists read the reason upon their plates. The enemy had put down reinforcing rods of tremendous power. Three compression members spread out fanwise behind her, bracing her against the low mountain side, 
while one huge tractor-beam was thrust directly downward, holding in an unbreakable grip a cylinder of earth extending deep down into bedrock. Two can play at that game. And Raudabush drove down similar beams, and forward-reaching tractors as well. "'Strap yourselves in solid, everybody,' he sounded a general warning. "'Something is going to give way somewhere soon, and when it does, we'll get a jolt.' And the promised jolt did indeed come soon. Prodigiously massive and powerful as the Nevian was, the Boise was even more massive and more powerful, and as the already enormous energy feeding their tractors, pushers, and projectors was raised to its inconceivable maximum, the vessel of the enemy was hurled upward, backward, and that of earth shot ahead with a bounding leap that threatened to strain even her mighty members. The Nevian anchor-rods had not broken. They had simply pulled up the vast cylinders of solid rock that had formed their anchorages. "'Grab him now!' Raudabush yelled, and even while an avalanche of falling rock was burying the countryside, Cleveland snapped a tractor-ray upon the flying fish, and pulled tentatively. Nor did the Nevian now seem averse to coming to grips. The two warring super-dreadnoughts darted toward each other and from the evader there flooded out the dreadful crimson opacity which had heretofore meant the doom of all things Solarian. It flooded out and engulfed the immense mass of humanity's hope in its spreading cloud of redly impenetrable murk. But not for long. Triplanetary's supership boasted no ordinary terrestrial defense, but was sheathed in screen after screen of ultra-vibrations, imponderable walls, it is true, but barriers impenetrable to any unfriendly wave. To the outer screen the red veil of the Nevians clung tenaciously, licking greedily at every square inch of the shielding sphere of force, but unable to find an opening through which to feed upon the steel of the Boise's armor. "'Get back! Way back! Go back and help Pittsburgh!' Rodebush drove an ultra-communicator beam through the murk, to the instruments of the terrestrial admiral. For the surviving warships of the fleet, its most powerful units, were hurling themselves forward to plunge into that red destruction. None of you will last a second in this red field. And watch out for a violet field pretty soon. It'll be worse than this. We can handle them alone, I think. But if we can't, there's nothing in the system that can help us and now the hitherto passive screen of the supership became active. At first invisible, it began to glow in livid violet light, and as the glow brightened to unbearable intensity, the entire spherical shield began to increase in size. Driven outward from the supership as a center, its advancing surface of seething energy consumed the crimson murk as a billow of blast-furnace heat consumes a cloud of snowflakes in the air above its shaft. Nor was the red death-mist all that was consumed. Between that ravening surface and the armor skin of the Boise there was nothing. No debris, no atmosphere, no vapor, no single atom of material substance, the first time in terrestrial experience that an absolute vacuum had ever been attained. Stubbornly contesting every foot of way lost, the Nevian fog retreated before the violet sphere of nothingness. Back and back it fell, disappearing altogether from all space as the violet tide engulfed the enemy vessel. But the flying fish did not disappear. 
her triple screens flashed into furiously incandescent splendor, and she entered, unscathed, that vacuous sphere, which collapsed instantly into an enormously elongated ellipsoid, at each focus a madly warring ship of space. Then in that tube of vacuum was waged a spectacular duel of ultra-weapons, weapons impotent in air but deadly in empty space. Beams, rays, and rods of titanic power smote cracklingly against ultra-screens equally capable. Time after time each contestant ran the gamut of the spectrum with his every available ultra-force, only to find all channels closed. For minutes the terrible struggle went on. Then— "'Cooper! Adlington! Spencer! Dutton!' Rodebush called into his transmitter. "'Ready?' can't touch him on the ultra, so I'm going into the macro bands. Give him everything you have as soon as I collapse the violet. Go! At the word, the violet barrier went down, and with a crash as of a disrupting universe, the atmosphere rushed into the void. And through the hurricane there shot out the deadliest material weapons of triplanetary. Torpedoes, non-ferrous, ultra-screened, Beam dirigible torpedoes charged were the most effective forms of material destruction known to man. Cooper hurled his canisters of penetrating gas, Adlington his atomic iron explosive bombs, Spencer his indestructible armor-piercing projectiles, and Dutton his shatterable flasks of the quintessence of corrosion, a sticky, tacky liquid of such dire potency that only one rare solarian element could contain it. Ten, twenty, fifty, a hundred were thrown as fast as automatic machinery could launch them, and the Nevians found themselves adversaries not to be despised. Size for size, their screens were quite as capable as those of the Boise. The Nevians' destructive rays glanced harmlessly from their shields, and the Nevians' elaborate screens, neutralized at impact by those of the torpedoes, were impotent to impede their progress. Each projectile must needs be caught and crushed individually by beams of the most prodigious power, and while one was being annihilated, dozens more were rushing to the attack. Then, while the twisting, dodging invader was busiest with the tiny but relentless destroyers, Radebush launched his heaviest weapon. The macrobeams, prodigious streamers of bluish-green flame which tore savagely through course after course of Nevian screen. Malevolent fangs, driven with such power and velocity that they were biting into the very walls of the enemy vessel, before the amphibians knew their defensive shells of force had been punctured. And the emergency screens of the invaders were equally futile. Course after course was sent out, only to flare viciously through the spectrum, and to go black. Outfought at every turn, the now frantically dodging Nevian leaped away in headlong flight only to be brought to a staggering, crashing halt, as Cleveland nailed her with a tractor beam. But the terrestrials were to learn that the Nevians held in reserve a means of retreat. The tractor snapped, sheared off squarely by a sizzling plane of force, and the fish-shaped cruiser faded from Cleveland's sight, just as the Boise had disappeared from the communicator plates of Radio Center, back in the hill, when she was launched. But though the plates in the control room could not hold the Nevian, she did not vanish beyond the ken of Randolph, now communications officer in the supership. 
for, warned and humiliated by his losing one speeding vessel from his plates in radio centre, he was now ready for any emergency. Therefore, as the Nevian fled, Randolph's spy-ray held her, automatically behind it as there was the full output of twelve special banks of iron-driven power tubes, and thus it was that the vengeful terrestrials flashed immediately along the Nevian's line of flight. Inertialess now, pausing briefly from time to time to enable the crew to accustom themselves to the new sensations, the Boise pursued the invader, hurtling through the void with a velocity unthinkable. "'He was easier to take than I thought he would be,' Cleveland grunted, staring into the plate. "'I thought he had more stuff, too,' Radabush assented. "'But I guess Costigan got almost everything they had. If so, with all their own stuff and most of theirs besides, we should be able to take them. They must have neutralization, too, to take off like that. And if it's one hundred percent, we'll never catch them. But if it isn't—' "'But it isn't. There they are.' "'And this time I'm going to hold her or burn out all our generators trying,' Cleveland declared, grimly. "'Are you fellows down there able to handle yourselves yet? Fine. Start throwing out your cans.' Space-hardened veterans all, the other terrestrial officers had fought off the horrible nausea of inertialessness, just as Rautabush and Cleveland had done. Again the ravening green macro-beams tore at the flying cruiser. Again the mighty frames of the two spaceships shuddered sickeningly as Cleveland clamped on his tractor-rod. Again the highly dirigible torpedoes dashed out with their freights of death and destruction. And again the Nevian shear-plane of force slashed at the terrestrial's tractor-beam. But this time the mighty puller did not give in to the solid rod of energy. Brighter, thicker, and longer grew the discharges as the gnawing plane drew more and more power. But in general ratio to that power the rod grew larger, denser, and ever harder to cut. More and more vivid came the pyrotechnic energy of electric brilliance, until suddenly the entire tractor-rod disappeared. At the same instant a blast of intolerable flame erupted from the Boise's flank, and the whole enormous fabric of her shook and quivered under the force of a terrific detonation. "'Randolph, I don't see them. Are they attacking or running?' Rautabus demanded. He was the first to realize what had happened. "'Running! Fast!' "'Just as well, perhaps, but get their line. "'Adlington!' "'Here?' "'Good. Was afraid you were gone. "'That was one of your bombs, wasn't it?' "'Yes. Well launched, just inside the screens. "'Don't see how it could have detonated, "'unless something hot and hard struck it in the tube. "'It would need about that much time to explode. "'Good thing it didn't go off any sooner, "'or none of us would have been here. "'As it is, Area 6 is pretty well done in.' but the bulkheads held the damage to six. What happened? We don't know yet exactly. Both generators on the tractor beam went out. At first I thought that was all, but my neutralizers are dead, and I don't know what else. When the G-4s went out, the fusion must have shorted the neutralizers. They would make a mess. It must have burned a hole down into number six tube. Cleveland and I will come down, and we'll all look around." 
donning spacesuits, the scientists let themselves into the damaged compartment through the emergency airlocks, and what a sight they saw! Both outer and inner walls of alloy armor had been blown away by the awful force of the explosion. Jagged plates hung awry, bent, twisted, and broken. The great torpedo tube, with all its intricate automatic machinery, had been driven violently backward, and lay piled in hideous confusion against the backing bulkheads. Practically nothing remained whole in the entire compartment. "'Nothing much we can do here,' Radebush said finally, through his transmitter. "'Let's go see what number four generator room looks like.' That room, though not affected by the explosion from without, had been quite as effectively wrecked from within. It was still stiflingly hot. Its air was still reeking with the stench of burning lubricant, insulation, and metal. Its floor was half covered by a semi-molten mass of what had once been vital machinery. For with the burning out of the generator bars, the energy of the disintegrating allotropic iron had had no outlet, and had built up until it had broken through its insulation, and in an irresistible flood of power had torn through all obstacles in its path of neutralization. Hmm. Should have had an automatic shut-off. One detail we overlooked, Radebush mused. The electricians can rebuild this stuff here, though. That hole in the hull is something else again. I'll say it's something else, the grizzled chief engineer agreed. She's lost all her spherical strength. Anchoring a tractor with this ship now would turn her inside out. Back to the nearest triplanetary shop for us, I would say. "'Come again, Chief,' Cleveland advised the engineer. "'None of us would live long enough to get there. We can't travel inertialess unless the repairs are made. So if they can't be made without very much travelling, it's just too bad.' "'I don't see how we could support our jacks.' The engineer paused, then went on. "'If you can't give me Mars or Tellus, how about some other planet?' I don't care about atmosphere, or about anything but mass. I can stiffen her up in three or four days if I can sit down on something heavy enough to hold our jacks and presses. But if we have to rig up space cradles around the ship herself, it'll take a long time. Months, probably. Haven't got a spare planet on hand, have you? We might have at that, Radebush made a surprising answer. A couple of seconds before we engaged— we were heading toward a sun with at least two planets. I was just getting ready to dodge them when we cut the neutralizers, so they should be fairly close somewhere. Yes, there's the sun right over there. Rather pale and small, but it's close, comparatively speaking. We'll go back up into the control room and find out about the planets. The strange sun was found to have three large and easily located children, and observations showed that the crippled spaceship could reach the nearest of these in about five days. Power was therefore fed to the driving projectors, and every scientist, electrician, and mechanic bent to the task of repairing the ruined generators, rebuilding them to handle any load which the converters could possibly put upon them. For two days the Boise drove on. Then her acceleration was reversed, and finally a landing was effected upon the forbidding, rocky soil of the strange world. It was larger than the earth, and of a somewhat stronger gravitation, 
although its climate was bitterly cold, even in its short daytime, it supported a luxuriant but outlandish vegetation. Its atmosphere, while rich enough in oxygen and not really poisonous, was so rank with indescribably fetid vapours as to be scarcely breathable. But these things bothered the engineers not at all. Paying no attention to temperatures or to scenery, and without waiting for chemical analysis of the air, the space-suited mechanics leaped to their tasks, and in only a little more time than had been mentioned by the chief engineer, the hull and giant frame of the supership were as staunch as of yore. "'All right, skipper,' came finally the welcome word. "'You might try her out with a fast hop around this world before you shove off in earnest.' Under the fierce blast of her projectors the vessel leaped ahead, and time after time, as Raudabush hurled her mass upon tractor-beam or presser, the engineers sought in vain for any sign of weakness. The strange planet half-girdled, and the severest test passed flawlessly, Raudabush reached for his neutralizer switches, reached and paused, dumbfounded, for a brilliant purple life had sprung into being upon his panel, and a bell rang out insistently. "'Want the blue blazes!' Raudabush shot out an exploring beam along the detector line, and gasped. He stared mouth open, then yelled, "'Roger is here, rebuilding his planetoid! Stations all!' End of chapter.